to you again. I fair to the little girls here with me this week, the first time they get to worship with us together. Let them lead me 
Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. O God, we ask that you would come, you send forth your light and your truth, and you would lead us to your holy hill, you would lead us to that altar, where there we can be reunited, we can come face to face with you. The living God, the holy God, the loving God, the righteous God, lift us even now as we hear your word. Lift us from our disquietness, lift us from our unrest. Enable us to sing even in our song. Because of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I don't have time to convince you why Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 have really been mislabeled throughout the centuries and seen as two separate sing songs. But let me just say to you, they should be one. If you want to talk about it afterwards, I can show you all of the literary structure through why they really should be one. But hopefully, even as I was reading that, as you're getting into it, you'll see why this really is meant to be one cohesive, masterful, uh, poetic song, structured all together in one place, to teach us how, even in the midst of sorrow, we can continue to sing all by faith. The song begins with this one ultimate declaration. Notice there at the very beginning, verse 1, verse 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And I want you to notice that this is just a statement of fact. This is saying something about our spiritual chemistry. We are thirsty for God. Our soul thirsts. For the living God. St. Augustine famously wrote, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Colossians 1 16, speaking of God, says this All things were created by him and for him. So I ask you this morning, even here in the Hamptons, have you recognized that your soul thirsts for God? And it will never be satisfied. Until it finds its full satisfaction in Him. I hope as you recognize your need, your deep need to drink from God, you begin to ask, well, how? How do I, how do I find my soul's satisfaction in Him? Or what even does that soul thirst look like? That especially is highlighted all throughout the psalm. I hope you heard it almost in a, this just, it drew out for me with a sense of empathy. But notice, what the psalmist experiences like as he's far from God, what it's like for him to thirst for God, he longs to get to God's presence. Over and over and over again, he's expressing this. He's expressing what it's like to be far from God. First, when he's far from God, he feels tears have been his food. The idea here is that, and maybe, maybe you experience this, I imagine that you have. In the midst of sorrow, the only thing you're hungry for is tears. It's just like to be far from God. When you're far from God, we often are haunted by questions. There's twelve different distinct questions through this psalm. Let me just read a few of them. When shall I come before God? Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Why do I go mourning? 
over and over and over again. Twelve times this song brings forth these questions. When God seems far from us, notice this in verse 4, our memories only bring sorrow. It's amazing, but in verse 4, the psalmist describes his memory of going to a worship service, going to grace camp, going to, going to this place of great joy, but now as he looks at this memory through the lens of sorrow, it only brings his sadness because it just reminds him how far he's come. Memories that always used to be filled with happiness, we look through that lens, only reminds us of our sorrow. When God is far away, time is twisted. Did you notice that? You hear this exaggerated sense in which he experienced life. Tears are his food all the day long. His enemies talk him all day long. Verse 9, I say to God, as you can laugh at the next point, when God is far from us, we often feel that God has rejected us. In verse 9, listen, he says, I say to God, why have you forgotten me? Verse 2 of chapter 43, why have you rejected me? In the midst of sorrow, it really is about the most natural thing to feel. Because if you think about it, God is almighty and all-powerful, He can't be thwarted, and you're longing for Him, and it doesn't seem to be coming, what else are you left to think? But that has God rejected me? Nothing can stop Him from coming, and He's not here. God is far from us, we so often feel God is silent. Interestingly enough, in the entire 16 verses, in question after question, cry after cry for God, not one time does God speak. Psalms proclaim lots of truth about God, but God never comes back and speaks, speaks to him. And a matter of fact, this song even ends with him crying out, still, in verse 5 of chapter 43, why are you downcast within me? We're far from God, God seems silent. Instead of hearing from God, we also want to hear from our enemies. The tragic and difficult part of sorrow. The psalmist described as taunting of his enemies. And many of us, we can take for granted. We can think that we live in a world of just material things and fail to recognize. And the Bible is very clear that no, there is a God who is spiritual and there is an enemy of God who is an enemy of your soul. And there are times that you hear that taunting voice. In your head, where is your God speaking to you in the second person? Where is your God? Ultimately, we seem obvious. But when God is far away, we seem so far away. Notice this in verse 7 the psalm says this in much more poetic and beautiful language. But there in verse 7 and verse 6, the writer picks himself standing on Mount Midsummer. Standing on the mountain range of Mount Hermon. It's possible that this is actually where the psalmist wrote, this author wrote this song, but more likely he's using this as a metaphor, because you see Mount Hermon and this Mount Mitzar is the furthest place you can get in Israel and still be in Israel. But it's the most furthest, most northern reaches of Israel. So here he stands, as far away from the temple as he possibly be, wondering, where is my God? And here's these waves, crashing waterfalls all around him. And inside of him there is just this overwhelming sense of these waves cascading over him, over and over and over again. As he's there, he's reminded of something that's even further away. He says this deep, 
calls to deep. This is a direct reference to the direct idea from Genesis chapter 1, right? The very beginning way that God describes the foundation of the formation of our world. He says there was, uh, Genesis 1, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So here this sits, all this stands on this mountain, lonely, and he's being reminded of this deep chaos of the world where God was so far away, just hovering over this darkness and this void. That's what he's saying. He feels like his soul. He can't get further away from the deep. For an Israelite to see this deep place represent chaos, represent this vast nothingness, and this nothingness washes over him in waves. We hear at the edge of this mountaintop, this deep place of his soul, calls towards this deep place of the world. There's just this longing, this wonder, this question. Give one quick note of just amazing constellation. This is right here. Just to lift this up a little bit. I want you to identify with the star. This is a passage and hopefully identify with the home star. But this note of constellation. If this is you, if it has ever been you, I want you to notice this one amazing truth. In verse 7, deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. That word roar there, actually the exact same word from verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I will go with the throng, leading them in procession with glad shouts of praise. Same word. So the psalmist, in his consolation to us, is this. It means that the sound of our anguish, the sound of the cry of our soul, is actually heard by God as towards praise. It's almost like the psalmist is there telling himself, he's standing in this mountain. That these lonely places, these lonely deep places can bring forth God praise, then maybe this roar of my soul also can as well. What about church members that was talking about this passage? She just said something that really gave her consolation as she noticed this moment was that Mount Hermon, as I said to you, is the furthest you can get from the temple and still be in Israel. It's good to know that you're still in the temple. You're still part of this relationship with God. You might feel far away, but even that cry of your soul is still a cry that God hears as praise. Now imagine if you've experienced sorrow. Hearing this psalmist recap the agony of his sadness, I hope it's actually oddly encouraging. I hope you can hear some sense, some resonance here with your own experience. You go, wow, somebody in the Bible has felt this. Because sorrow often makes us feel so alone, so lonely, so uh, a sense that nobody else has faced what I've faced. And so you can hear in the Bible, you can recognize, no, this is actually part and parcel of the spiritual life. Now, some of you, though, who might be sitting here thinking, I've never felt any of this. And I don't want to feel any of this. I don't like emotions. I certainly don't like sadness. Let me challenge you a bit. You see, this psalmist explains that the experience of sadness is one of the essential elements of the thirst of your soul. If you watch the news, if you go through your own life and marriage and relationships and family, you never are actually experiencing the sorrow that's there, the brokenness that we want some of the things we do in our services. 
confession of sin, a song, or announcing the status of our, of our sin, none of those are going to make sense to you. you never experience it, you have to wonder whether you really are first in God. If the spiritual chemistry of our soul is the thirst for God, and you're never experiencing that thirst, you have to ask yourself, what am I covering up? What am I quenching that thirst with if I'm not quenching it with the living God? Now, when you figure that out, but you realize just how often your soul really is panting for God's presence, then you'll be asking, now how? How do I touch this thirst? You'll recognize, gosh, what this is, this kind of nagging sense of emptiness in me is actually a thirst for God. What do I do now? Our psalmist answers that question. He answers it especially towards that chapter 43, as we shift to chapter 43, and why presents these two chapters are meant to go together. And he does so by changing the questions. I actually would encourage this to you. If you're a member of spiritual sorrow, it's an actual practical exercise for you to do, you to do with yourself. And notice this. As the psalm begins, literally the psalm begins with three main questions he's asking. When is God going to move? Where is God? And why is this happening? You can just trace those through and find those three questions right there in chapter 42. As we move through this kind of process of our sorrow, we need to change the questions from a when is God to how is God already moving. To a, from a where is God to what is it that God is going to do to bring you to himself. And from a why is God to who is God. Those of you know, this is a regular spiritual discipline. As I find myself wondering, where is God? It's so critical to actually shift myself. But no, no, not where. But how is God already moving? When are you coming, God? No, no, let me shift my question from when to actually what is God going to do when he comes? And from why? Why are you doing this to me to who? Who are you? As you change those questions to your mind, you will find great spiritual nourishment. Change and actually power in good faith. That's exactly what the psalmist does. So let's start with this first question. He moves from the uh, when to how. How is God delivering me? Notice in verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead you. You see, the psalmist knows that in the midst of the darkness of our soul, he knows one thing. God is going to send out his truth light to find us. Does this remind you of anything? You quote from the New Testament. John chapter 8, Jesus speaking, he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in John 14, Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Jesus' entire, he put a motto or a mission statement over his whole ministry, he said there's this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So how is God going to deliver you? He is going to send Jesus, the light and truth, to come into your darkness and find you. Very simple, but if you are here in this room, just even now, coming awake to your soul, there's for God wondering, when is he going to come? Where is he going to come from? How is he going to come? He is going to send Jesus. That's what this passage said. This truth light is that Jesus will come into the world and he will bring himself 
to you, even in the midst of your sorrow, brokenness, pain, whatever it may be. See, the psalmist had very little idea about God's work incarnation. This notion of God actually coming to the world. It's some sense of it, but we, on this side of the New Testament, on this side of the life of Jesus, we actually know what this light and this truth looks like. Who he actually is. He's come to deliver us from our sin, to bring us once again into the face of God, into the presence of God, to rescue us from our sorrow. He comes day by day through the scriptures, teaching us, guiding us with his truth light right here, shining it into every dark corner of our life. Jesus is how he's going to deliver you. Secondly, what is Jesus going to do when he comes to us? What should we expect his presence to do for us as he arrives? Notice verse 43, uh, chapter 43, verse 44. Send out your light and truth. What is that light and truth going to do as it comes into our life? It's going to bring us, bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. He brings us to God's holy hill. He brings us to the altar of God. Here's where we will find those streams of life and nourishment again. And this, once again, points us to Jesus, especially the cross. You see, for the writer of the Psalms, he had in mind this longing to get back to this temple. And that temple represented the full embodiment of God's presence here on earth. And so he's longing to get to that temple, where there will be this altar of sacrifice. He can be reminded once again that he's in the presence of God, that this sacrifice has been given, and here he stands now fully in God's presence. But we know that that temple and that altar, all that holy hill, all was plenty, actually to Jesus on the cross. To this holy hill where God was fully known and displayed in his great love and his great mercy and his amazing grace poured out for the world through the death of Jesus Christ. This might seem obvious and we could have a church member say, hey, I just feel like we all just talk about the gospel. <laughs> and honestly, if we can maybe get there in our own lives and times, we can take it for granted and we fail to recognize how the gospel, this truth, this beauty of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, actually is the solution for all of our needs. In our sorrow, we must be reminded of what it is. We must remind ourselves, remind each other of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. My wife and I briefly were saying to each other in the midst of our pain, this is what every trial will say something along the lines of this to each other. God has already done so much for us just by sending Jesus into our world and onto our cross that if God never did anything more to show us his love, the cross would be enough to prove his goodness. That is an anchor for us. Whatever the sorrow, whatever the pain, whatever the difficulty, the cross becomes an anchor. That's why we so emphasize the gospel day and day out. Whatever our area of our life, we're being reminded of the cross, anchors us into that love of God. And the truth is, he's done so much else, so many other things to show his love for us. The cross is the ultimate discipline. But the day after day after day, the blessings and reminders and demonstrations of his great love. One of those that I think is so critical that we often can take for granted happens right here. Happens right here as we partake of this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As we come together as a community, reminded as we come into God's presence here as a church, as we 
to believe this miracle of miracles. That this gospel gets displayed, what Jesus has done for us gets displayed as a church, as the word of God is preached, as we come together as brothers and sisters, that God actually brings his presence to us. And so as we are longing for God, let me encourage you and remind you of the, just the final life and death necessity of being a part of church. This gives you a picture of what happens on Sundays just where these thirsty beings going through this desert. You just see in every movie, they pull up their canteen and just that one last drop, right? That's what church really is. At times it makes you need one drop. But I'd rather have one drop than all these other things that the Lord has Truth like this here. You're again facing God. So, when has become how? Where has become a what? And now why has become a who? Did you notice? How much theology is in this tiny, packed into this tiny little psalm? The psalmist makes a reference to God 28 times. He speaks of God as his soul thirst, the object of his glad shouts and songs of praise. God is his rock, his refuge. He names him God Elohim, which means God creator. It's Kyel, the living God. He names him El Simcha, which means God like exceeding joy. I actually think he makes up that name. Uh, you don't find it anywhere else. He creates it. It's own name. God makes you enjoy. And most importantly, he calls it God. This covenant, this personal, this intimate, the most intimate name of God. And all this is instruction. In the midst of our great sorrow, the greatest act of faith that we can perform is to draw near to this one, this living God who seems so far away. We do this. As we remember, as we meditate, as we remind ourselves of who this God is. I can tell you that this is central. This is the key. This is everything that the psalm is building. wanting you to walk away with because the whole passage of the psalm builds towards this point in verse 8. This central premise of chapter 42 and 43 is right there in verse 8. So if you like that underlining things, boxing things, you want to remind yourself through your future study, do that around verse 8. Because this is the key to the entire passage. Everything is By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with a prayer to the God of my life. In the midst of sorrow, we must remind ourselves, we affirm, affirm ourselves of God's never-ending, unceasing, unrelenting, unstoppable, sovereign love. You see, throughout the Bible, God is known for his chesed. You gotta say it that way, right? Chesed, strong, that I'll remember. And that is the covenant love. This is basically the Old Testament concept of what the New Testament refers to as grace. It refers to God's mercy, his unrelenting mercy. One commentator kind of describes covenant love this way. The free-flowing love of God that knows no bounds. <laughs> so here in verse 8, the psalmist is remembering, is right remembering, God commands his steadfast love. Over 550 times God uses this word, you see God in the Bible giving a command. But this is the only time that God gives a command to his covenant love. God actually is commanding one of his fundamental character traits, the, you could argue, is the most fundamental character trait of God. And he's commanding you to go and do something. I believe this once 
God is commanding Jesus to go forth in the world and to find all those who are the objects of his love. So in the midst of sorrow, remember who this God is. We need to know this is a God who is sitting enthroned for all time. He's God Almighty. Not a single one of his commands can be thwarted. And from this throne, he issues a command to his covenant love. Jesus Christ, the embodiment of that mercy and grace and love. He says, go forth in the world. Go out there and rescue my beloved and so Jesus, of course, with willing recipient of that command, goes forth and accomplishes the purposes of God. And in the midst of sorrow, we've been reminded of who this God is. This is his very nature. You see that in uh, the movie uh, Last of the Weekends. It's a moment where Daniel Day Lewis and all of his glorious 1980s era prime just sees this, you know, God of a man, an actor. And he's supposed to be this American Indian, this woman who's about to be captured, and he's got to go away and go to space with so he can save her someday. And he's looks at her and she says, Stay alive! Stay alive! And then he jumps off his water. And eventually he actually does come back and rescues her. And I think that's a tiny little moment. But if you've seen it and you can imagine some, somebody saying that to you, and I do think that there's something in this song that's reminding us of the character of God. In the midst of our sorrow, we need to remind us. Just stay alive. He will comfort He's going to comfort me. In his nature, he will come back for me. See, this then is the end of all of our sorrow. This is actually what all of our pain is leading to. It's what it's producing. It's producing the knowledge of God. You see, remember where the psalm started. It started by telling us that our soul is craving the living God. We are so thirsty for God. That's what you were made for. But let me quote one of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon. He said this, You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. You will never know the fullness of Christ, and that's what you long for, that's what you're thirsty for. You'll never know that fullness of that satisfying drip from Christ until you're empty, until you understand the emptiness everything but Christ. And you see, our vision of God is so clouded by our consumption of so many lesser gods. This is for all of us. Oldest in the room to youngest in the room. You don't even recognize the ways that you are feasting on these lesser gods. It's, it's just diminishing your understanding how thirsty you are for the living God. We can't see the face of God through the forest of our lesser loves. So sorrow comes. And it comes as the agent of our transformation. Sorrow empties us. Sorrow exposes the true thirst of our souls, making us cry out for God alone. Again, I hope that just gives you some consolation. I hope that allows you to understand that God is using this pain in your life. And He's using it to give you that which you long for most. Just conclude by highlighting the, something of the structure of the psalm. Because in many ways, the psalm is built in two parts. I haven't actually talked about it yet, the most critical one. One part is the record of the geography of the psalmist's soul, and that's all we've been describing these questions and these longings and this quietness within him. But the other part is this three times repeated refrain. It's almost the chorus. 
know, as we sing a song, it has these different kind of verses, and then there's this chorus that we break into. Christ, my cornerstone, would be one example. Or, Arise, my soul. We say that multiple times. This song's actually structured the same way. There's this three times chorus that brings through this song. It says this, verse 5, it's there. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see, three times this heart cry is almost inserted into the structure of the poem. And I think this song was actually meant to be sung in two parts. It's my guess. I don't know. Don't, you know I, don't, I don't know if it's actually true. I wasn't there in the temple when they would sing it. But I imagine that it was sung in two parts. And you have this soloist who would stand on one side, and he just would sing this just sad song along. This craving, this desperate desire for the living God. And as he's singing, after you know, each moment, there's suddenly there would be just bursting forth of this choir on the other side. And they would sing forth, Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise in my Savior and my God. You remember what I said to you that verse 8 is the center point of the whole psalm? Why don't you listen to it again? By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. We've already studied this. And the promise that Christ will come to us day by day by day he will come. But what about at night? What about for us in the night times? In the times when God seems far away? Well then, at night, his song is with a prayer to the God of my life. We have a song we can sing. A song that we need to sing. Well, what is that song? Structurally, I believe it's actually the chorus. I believe it's that refrain that the choir is singing into the sorrow of this soulless soul. Crying out hope in God. Why downcast of my soul? Why despite everything? Me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Sorrow is coming, emptying you of all of your other, all those lesser loves, making you aware of how hungry, how thirsty you are for God, so that you can cry out, My Savior and my God. What is so beautiful about that? My Savior? That word is my Yeshua. If you have any concept of Hebrew or the Old Testament, you've never heard a sermon, a, a sermon talk about this. Yeshua is the name Joshua. Joshua is the name Jesus. Do you hear that? The sorrow is leading this psalmist to the point where he can cry out, My Jesus and my God. You say in Hebrew, but that's what's all pointing to. That sorrow is working within you. God is using that sorrow to bring you to the place that you can keep on singing. And you actually can reach out and grab a hold of this God and proclaim with this psalmist, My Savior. My God. Even in the mountains, even on the beach, even in the midst of whatever uh, is going on in your life, we can keep saying Great. Oh God, whatever we may be this morning. Whether we're far from sorrow and have been covering it up, or whether we're right in the middle of it, just in this deep, deep longing for you. 
uncertain why life is happening the way it is. We just want to move into this place here in your sanctuary where we can recognize who you are. And recognize what it is that you have done for us, Jesus. And see how your light and your truth will bring us once again into your presence. And our faces can be lifted up and we can praise. Even in our sorrow, we can sing. That's what we want. So that, God, we can say day after day, I will yet praise you. There is a day coming when I will praise you. However long it might be, there is a day coming when I will praise you. For you are my Savior and my God. And all of this in and through the presence of Jesus.